Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 28. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to worship you in song, prayer, giving, fellowship, and now to worship you through the study of your word and the proclamation of your word, and then in a few moments to worship you in the celebration and participation of the Lord's Supper, your table that you have set for us. We pray that you'd use this time for your glory and the benefit of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord Acton, a British historian of the late 19th and early 20th century, has been credited with this statement. Now it's a maybe a an amalgamation of other people's statements, but he has said it this way. Power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. That statement drives at the propensity of corrupt mankind to use power to their own advantage. This morning, we want to consider one whose authority is not corrupt, nor leading toward corruption, but instead whose authority leads to the redemption of many. We're in Matthew chapter 28. In the first four verses, we see the Marys headed to the tomb. And why they're headed there is because the Lord Jesus had been laid there They head to the tomb and they see that the stone is rolled away and they see an angel sitting on top of the tomb or the tombstone. And the angel that's on top of the tombstone speaks beginning in verse 5. So Matthew 28 and verse 5. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for He has risen as He said. Come, see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. And behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell His disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. I love that. Tell my brothers. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. So this is the setting. The resurrection. An encounter with an angel. An encounter with the resurrected Christ. And instructions. Those instructions were to go to Galilee. And when they arrive at Galilee, they will see Him. He who is the resurrected Christ. This is the instruction. 
And what we want to notice as we begin a three-week look at this passage, that the disciples obeyed. Verse 16. Verse 16. And we want to notice this principle. Disciples obey. Disciples obey. Look at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had, what? Directed them. So they were instructed to go, and what did they do? They went. That's what disciples do. Disciples hear an instruction from their Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Master is their Judge. The Judge is their Savior. The Savior is the Sustainer. The Sustainer is the Creator. The the same one as the High Priest, who is also the Advocate. This is the one who is our Master. Disciples... Obey the word of their master. That's a clear implication from the text. Not only do we see it there, but you could see it in the Lord Jesus' statement in another place, in John chapter 10, in verse 27. Listen to the words of Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. I know who they are. And what does it say? They follow me. That's another way of saying, they obey me. What I teach, they take in. What I teach, they believe. And what I teach, by God's grace, in accordance with my power, they obey. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. Disciples obey. Secondly, we want to notice this. Disciples worship. Disciples worship. Now, you already saw it in Mary, the Marys, seeing the resurrected Christ. He says, greetings. They say, whoa, it's Jesus. They get down on their knees and they grab onto him and it says they worship him. So we already see an example of it in the text. But here we see another example. Verse 17. And when they saw him, this is now talking about the disciples. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Well, so we recognize that disciples' worship isn't always perfect, right? There are times we struggle with things. But the reality is, true disciples worship. I want you to hold your hand here. We're going to go over to John chapter 9 just for a moment. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, you know it starts with Matthew. And it's part of a group of material, a group of books called the Gospels. So it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So turn three books to your right from Matthew to John. If you find yourself in Acts or Romans, you've gone too far. If you're in Luke, just keep going. John chapter 9. We're going to come right back to Matthew in just a moment. The context in John 9 is a man was born blind. And the Lord Jesus heals this blind man. He gives him sight. And the Pharisees are questioning the blind man. Do you... um, who, who is it that, that has given you sight? Where is he? We want to find him. And so the, the blind man asks a question. And I love it. I love it. But it's very important to what we're talking about. He says, do you also want to become his disciples? There's an implication here that he has already become a disciple. This guy healed me. I want to follow him. Do you also want to become his disciple? And they were so frustrated with this guy 
that they resorted to mocking him. Here's what they said about him. They said, you were born in utter sin. I haven't told you where you are in John 9 yet. You'll get there. It's in there. You were born in utter sin. Like, so they've, they've resorted to mocking. The follow-up to that is, whenever we make someone else push down, we're also trying to elevate ourselves. You were born in utter sin, and you would instruct us? This is the whole idea. Do you also want to be his disciples? Oh, what kind of a peasant are you? What kind of a, an infidel are you? What kind of a, a pagan are you? You were born in utter sin, which is why you were born blind. And you would instruct us. You would teach us. And they cast him out. And I love this now. That's the context now. So take a look now in verse, verse 35. Well, it says he found him. Jesus found him. But I, it's, it's, it's in the, the, the passage here. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. Oh, there it is. Thank you. Verse 35. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? So Jesus finds this cast out. This cast away. The, the dregs of society in accordance with the Pharisees. Jesus finds him and says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 36, he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He's ready. You can see his life has been impacted by Jesus. And he he says, like, I know you know what's going on. Tell me what to do. Verse 37, Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. Verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe. And what's the next thing he does? You say it? He worshipped him. Do you also want to be one of his disciples? Get out of here, kid. You're not good enough. Jesus proves them wrong by finding him. Jesus engages with him. Jesus lets him know who he is that healed him. This man now becomes a believer and his first act is to do what? To worship. Friends, disciples worship. They worship God in accordance with the truth, empowered by the Spirit. And oftentimes, not exclusively, but oftentimes that worship is directed toward the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we recognize that we worship a triune God. We worship the Father, we worship the Son, and we worship the Spirit. They are all worthy of worship. Oftentimes, our focal point, because He's the visible representation of the the Godhead, we worship Jesus. And this is who this man worshiped. He becomes a believer, and he immediately worships. This is a, a truth. True disciples worship God. Let's go back, please, to Matthew 28. Disciples obey. Disciples worship. As we follow a little further in the passage, we want to see that Jesus is the authority. Jesus is the authority. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to him, to them, 
Will you read it with me? I think it will make more impact. Everyone's in verse 18. I've already read the first part of it. We want to read what Jesus answered and said to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You could spend a lot of time on this verse. We only have just mere moments. How much authority? All authority. Authority over what? Heaven and earth, which is everything. Is there anywhere that His authority doesn't reach? He has supreme universal authority and that supreme universal authority has been given, granted to Him. Given. Didomai. Didomi. It's God the Father gave to Him all this authority. This is a fact. This is truth. We read about it elsewhere in a place like Colossians chapter 1. Verses 17 and 18 are very clear. This will be on the screen. Consider this for a moment. This is, this is glorious. This is worship, what we're about to read. This is a worship-oriented passage. Consider with me, and let us worship the Lord together. And He, Jesus, is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together or consist. He bands everything together. And He is, He is the head of the body. He's the head of the church. He is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. Listen to what He says. That in everything He might be preeminent. That in everything He might take first place. That He might be supreme in our focus, supreme in our minds, supreme in our worship, supreme in our obedience, supreme as the authoritative one of heaven. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is the authority. This is truth. Disciples obey. Disciples worship. Jesus is the authority. Fourth, Jesus gives the marching orders. Jesus sets the direction. He's the head. He's the head of the body. In everything, He should have the preeminence. And so He utters forth a directive. And the directive is our marching order. This is what the church is for. Listen to what He says. Go therefore, because I am the one who has all the authority in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. One command in this passage with three elements. One command with three elements. It it would be like this. Win the game. There's the command. By hustling on every play. By paying attention to every play call. And by doing your job. What's what's the directive? Win the game. How? How? How do I do this? And there are the three 
elements. Or it would be like a mother saying to her boys, take care of the yard by cutting the lawn, trimming the hedges, and weed whacking the edges. What's the, what's the call? Go take care of the yard. What does it consist of? Well, mowing the lawn, trimming the hedges, and weed whacking. If you don't do those three things, the main objective will not come to pass. Right? One command, but three elements of the command. Well, that's what we have before us. The command in this text is to make disciples. To make disciples. That's the command. The other words in this passage are dependent and grabbing on, clinging on for their meaning to that main command to make disciples. Quite honestly, we can't make this happen. Can you make someone a disciple? Can you make someone a Christian? Can you make someone believe? Our job is fulfilled by obeying the elements of this charge. You and I cannot trick someone into being a true convert. We can't manipulate anyone into salvation. We hold forth the Gospel as a life-changing, life-altering truth. Maybe we are planting. Maybe we are watering. But remember this. It is always and only God who gives or brings the increase. How is a true disciple formed? How is a true disciple formed? A person sees their sin, understands the guilt associated and judgment for their sin. A person comes to understand and believe that Jesus Christ has provided our only means for escaping the judgment to come. And He is the one who provides righteousness that brings us into a relationship of peace with God. In other words, a person, in order to be redeemed, in order to become a disciple, has to recognize their sin and turn from their sin. We call that repentance. The Bible calls it repentance. They repent of their sin, turn from their sin, and see God's solution for their sin, which is an upward look in our mind, because Jesus was lifted up from the earth to draw all men to Himself. We look up to the cross of Christ. We look up to Christ who hung on a cross bearing our sin and the judgment for our sin when we turn from our sin and embrace the provision of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have experienced redemption or salvation. Having been redeemed through repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus, there is now a uniting with Christ and we have been made complete in Christ. This is how a disciple is formed. I can't make a person repent. And I can't make a person believe. But I can tell them what they need to hear that they might understand their need for repentance and God's solution for their belief. Right? That's my job. 
So a person becomes a disciple. A disciple is a learner or follower. A disciple is a learner or a follower. This passage in Matthew 28 supplies two other elements that are required for true discipleship. Now, there's no such thing as a born-again believer who is not a disciple. You got it? There's not two categories. However, there can be a born-again believer who is a bad disciple. How would one become a bad disciple? Don't learn and don't follow. Is that clear? Okay. This passage tells us what discipleship is about. Two elements other than the proclamation, right, that's the going. We go and we tell people. We'll talk about that next week. We, we, we present the gospel. We show people what the Bible says. A person comes to faith in Christ. There are two more elements that are needed for them. Baptism and teaching. Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So baptism and teaching are the two other elements. We come to faith, having gone out with the gospel. People come to faith, they become a disciple, and they need to baptize. They need to be baptized and taught. Baptism is an outward demonstration of, of an inward reality. Baptism is an outward demonstration of an inward reality. In other words, baptism pictures what happens to a person spiritually. You're hearing this. Baptism does not produce the spiritual change. It proclaims the imagery, or excuse me, it proclaims through imagery the spiritual change that has taken place. This is what baptism is. Baptism does not save a person. It doesn't even set them apart. Baptism preaches. Baptism pictures. Baptism proclaims. It proclaims something. In verse 19, Jesus calls his disciples to baptize people In the name of the Father, singular name, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The symbol of baptism here in this concept of being baptized into the name of the triune God, the symbol of baptism is pointing to our vital relationship with the one triune God. When we're baptized into the Father, into the Son, And into the Spirit, what we're recognizing is we have a new relationship with them. I've been adopted by the Father. I've been redeemed by the Son. I've been baptized by the Spirit. I'm empowered by the Spirit. I've been sealed by the Spirit. There's this new vital relationship that takes place. We are related intimately when we're born again to God himself. And baptism proclaims this vital relationship. The word baptism means to submerge. The word is baptizo. It's a transliteration. Not many of our words in our New Testament are transliterations. In other words, they didn't bother to define the word. They bothered to just give you that Greek word in an Englishish way. It's like baptize didn't mean anything until they changed a Greek word to mean it. I do that regularly. I just make new words up all the time. 
I just like add an ish on the end or an ismal on the end. Just add all kinds of things. And people, though the word doesn't exist, people tend to get the context, get the, the idea. Well, the word baptism or baptize means to submerge. Has the, the two words don't really relate. And one of the reasons, theoretically, in tradition is that the, those that were the translators back then or the behind the translation didn't want this concept of submersion to be publicized in the church. One of the dictionary terms or definitions of the word baptize means to marinate. My wife makes some good marinated meats, whether it be chicken or steak. She does a really good job. There's something about marinating something. If you don't leave it in long enough, it doesn't get the marinade flavor, and it's kind of like, it kind of sort of tastes marinated. Because you have to leave it in for a while. And there has to be enough of the marinade, usually, so that the meat is kind of really encapsulated in it. Another imagery instead of marinade is to pickle something. You get like these peppers or these pickles and you put them in vinegar and you let them sit. It stays for a period of time and eventually the, the vinegar impacts the way that that particular thing tastes. It's been marinated. It's been pickled. It changes the flavor of something. That's the idea of the word except when we baptize someone we don't leave them in there to turn into prunes and die. That wouldn't help anyone, and it would not serve to demonstrate anything of substance. Remember, baptism is picturing something. What is it picturing when we think about this concept of submersion? In, in baptism, we're not trying to pickle or marinate anyone, but we are trying to demonstrate the immersion that comes, they're, they're being immersed, and it brings out something of, of their relationship with Jesus Christ. The immersion depicts our identification with the death and burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Buried with Him in baptism. Let me leave it there for a second. Death and burial. That's what happens. When, you, when we have a baptism and we put someone under the water, what we're saying is this person has been united with Christ because of what God has already done in their lives. And we are proclaiming, we're preaching a message about what God has done. And it's an outward symbol of this inward reality. They have died with Christ. They've been buried with Christ. And what happens when we bring them up out of the water? The reemerging of that person, of that disciple from the water, depicts our identification with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, except we don't wait parts of three days because then we would have some issues on our hands, right? So we're talking about a, uh, a methodology that describes and depicts and symbolizes something. A person is buried with Christ in baptism and they are raised in newness of life. The baptism doesn't produce this. The work of God through the Spirit accomplishes this. The baptism preaches it. The baptism preaches it. That's what it does. The commission that Jesus gave, based upon his ultimate authority, is to make disciples. Necessary for making disciples is going. We'll talk about that next week. Necessary for making disciples is teaching. We'll talk about that the week after. And baptizing. That's what we're talking about right now. It is a symbol of our union with the triune God, and it is a symbol 
of our union with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now listen carefully to me. Take a deep breath. Without baptism, we are not following Jesus. So that leaves two options for the one that is not baptized after their salvation. Either they're not believers or they are not good disciples. Can a person go to heaven without being baptized? Yes. Yes. And we can easily point to the thief on the cross. In that aberration to the norm, where he had no opportunity to obey the Lord in this, yes, today you'll be with me in paradise. We know that the thief on the cross ended uh, is currently in the presence of God and will be forever and ever. And he was not baptized physically. Does baptism save a person? No. We don't have time to go into all the nitty-gritty about why that's the case, but it, baptism does not save. It is not the power of God unto salvation. What is? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, listen carefully. Is baptism a necessary part of the Christian life? The answer to that is an emphatic yes. Friend, I would be very scared to call myself a Christian and be unwilling to do what Jesus the ultimate authority, told me to do. Make disciples of all the nations. This takes place by going. This takes place by baptizing. This takes place by teaching. To be made a disciple, someone has to have presented the gospel. I must embrace the gospel. I must be baptized depicting the gospel. And I must continue to learn the things that God, through Christ, has taught. This is discipleship. For the, the one who ha has all authority in heaven and earth to call you to be baptized after your salvation and for you to say, no, if I were you, I would be scared. You are saying no to the head of the church, the creator of heaven and earth and all that in them is, the one who sustains every molecule that is around you and of which you are consisting. The Savior of mankind has called you to be baptized. Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Have you, since your conversion to Christ, been baptized? If not, you ought to be baptized. And I want to give you a moment now to respond. Believer in Jesus Christ, you've trusted Christ as your Savior. Your Master has called you to be baptized. Will you do it? If you will, raise your hand. If you have already been baptized, you don't need to be re-baptized. Baptized one time, physically, after your salvation. If you raised your hand and would like to be baptized, please see me after the service. We want to declare 
our willingness to follow Christ the King in every area of life. This is not a private matter. It's a very public matter. This is why I don't have you bow your head and close your eyes. Everyone with their heads bowed and eyes closed. No one's looking around. I heard that so many times as a student. Why? Who are we afraid of? If, if I can't say, yes, I'll follow Jesus with you looking, do I really want to follow him? Amen. I don't think so. I think we want to let everyone around know, Jesus is my Savior. He saved me from my sin. I have life because of him. I want to follow Jesus. That's what happens when we truly come. Which is why true disciples worship. Because we know what he's done. True disciples also obey. And they obey even in this area of baptism. 